Good morning, church. Special welcome to the visitors. It's a delight to be a family with you all this morning. I think it was about a month ago now that I delivered the first part of this message, which is now a series on the glory of God. But because it's been so long, we're going to just quickly go through a review of the last message. And I started that message with uh, some research done by LifeWay Research. It was conducted in 2022, and the goal was to find out what evangelical Christians believed in the year 2022. Among those polled, they had to attest to these beliefs. The Bible is the highest authority for what I believe. It is very important for me to personally encourage non-Christians to trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. Jesus Christ's death on the cross is the only sacrifice for what could remove, that could remove the penalty of my sin. Only those who trust in Jesus alone as their Savior receive God's free gift of eternal salvation. You read that and you think, that's good theology. That's excellent. The beliefs of these people must, must correlate to these for this first section of beliefs. They probably have a good foundation of a good belief system that will lead them into correct theology. But then, when it got down to their feelings, what they actually believed about God, here's how it played out. 58% believe that God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. 55% Believe that the Holy Spirit is a force, but is not a personal being. 55% agree that everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. 53% disagree that the claim that even the smallest sin deserves eternal damnation. And 44% say that Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. So what's the disconnect going on? You begin with this foundation of the Bible is the highest authority for what I believe. That it is infallible and that, and that is, it is imperfect. And that I believe the only way to have salvation is to trust Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And then you get into the personal feelings, the belief. Well, God would accept religions more than just Christianity. I mean... Can we really say that Jesus was God? I know I believe that the Bible is inspired and perfect, but really, do we have to say that Jesus was God? Can't he just be a great teacher? And see, what happens is our feelings begin dictating our theology. Theology is the study of God, or Christian theology would be the study, uh, to, revealed in, the study of God revealed in the Bible. And our theology, more often than not, is actually dictated by how we feel more than what we say we believe. And what my passion is, is to help people transform their feelings to actually go align with what the scripture reveals about God. That God is better than what your feelings think he is. If you think God would be better if he accepted all religions, then you don't know what better is. And we're living in a generation that most times, or a, a lot of evangelical Christians will say that they believe these correct aspects about God, but then their feelings and their life plays out according to false theology. 
And then we took this dive into the life of Moses and the Exodus. And we talked about how the Exodus is a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Moses goes into, into Egypt and says, let my people go. Along the same lines that Jesus Christ comes into our life and says, let my people go from the slavery of sin. And then we had the blood on the doorpost, the Passover, that when the blood of Christ is applied to our life, the angel of death, death passed over us. And then when they're freed, they go through the sea of reeds, which is a picture of baptism. And on the other side of this, this sea of reeds, they go to a mountain where a covenant is established with this new people. And it says that they sang the song of Moses. And that's why this same song is sung again in Revelation 19. An angel says, they will sing the song of Moses. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the almighty, just and true are your ways. Because the exodus is depicting to us another greater exodus. You exiting out of sin. The old man staying in the waters of the Red Sea. And you moving forward establishing a covenant. And then we talked about how Israel, they didn't know who God was. They didn't know the Yahweh God. They had seen a God of power deliver them out of Egypt. And so when they come to this land before Mount Sinai, they have a little bit of correct theology. God is a God of power. He's a God of might. He is able to defeat all the gods of Egypt. But they didn't have full, perfect theology. And so when Moses goes up a mountain to receive the Ten Commandments, he's there 40 days. And then Israel, as they're waiting for Moses, they build a golden calf. We talked about how rabbis interpret this story a bit differently. Uh, Jewish rabbis, they say Israel's, Israel was wanting to worship God. It says when they build, built the golden calf, they said, Behold, Israel, the gods that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And then Aaron says, Tomorrow will be a feast day to Yahweh. Their intention was to worship Yahweh God, but they adopted pagan practices to do so. We, sh- we talked about how uh, archaeology reveals that Egyptians would worship uh, bulls, and bulls to them resembled power, might. And so they erected these, uh, these calves that symbolized power, just like God revealed himself as a God of power, that can do anything, Lord God the Almighty, El Shaddai. And so they erected these calves, we're going to worship this God of might, right? But because they adopted pagan practices, it quickly transformed into idolatry, looking just like the surrounding nations around them. And so Moses comes down off the mountain and he destroys the old golden calves. He grinds them to powder and then makes Israel drink it. And then God tells Moses and the people, I'm going to send you into a land that I promised you, flowing with milk and honey. They're in the midst of the desert right now, and God is telling them, I'm going to give you everything I promised. I'm going to give you this land, prosperity. You're not going to have to live in tents. Everything I promised you, you're going to have, but I'm just going to send an angel with you. I'm not going to go with you myself. And so many Christians would be happy with this. Yes! My business is going to thrive. I'm going to have a nice home and nice cars. I'm going to have everything I want. But Yahweh wasn't going to go with them. And how important it is for us to desire the presence of God on our life. Not just an angel to go with us. Not just blessing. But to have God himself with us. 
And Israel recognized this, and there was great mourning throughout the camp. That, yes, they were going to get everything that they wanted, but now God was going to leave them. It was just going to be an angel going before them. And so Moses, remember, he's a picture of the coming Christ. He goes up again to the Lord to plead on behalf of Israel. And God tells Moses, after Moses is Israel's advocate, the Lord tells Moses, you have found favor in my eyes. I will go with you. And then we have these words from Moses. And he said, I beseech, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. And this is where we are now. The Greek, the Hebrew word rather for glory here is kavod. And it actually refers to weight. So Moses is asking, Lord, show me the weight of who you are. Show me that you are weighty. In ancient times, when you paid for an item, you would weigh out the sum of money it was going to cost. That's why gold and silver, they weigh more. And so you would weigh it out and then pay for your item. And as they're going into the land of promise, they, Moses is asking, if you're going to bring us there, then we got to know what kind of God you are. We got to know not just you're a God of power. We have to know you personally and intimately. There has to be an escalation of relationship here so that it's more than just a few aspects of God. We have to know you and your weight. You think of the prophets and the glory of God revealed to them. Fire, power. Isaiah falling before on his face and saying, woe is me for I'm a man of unclean lips. You have Ezekiel and Jeremiah falling on their faces, dead men, before the glory or the weightiness of God. In Revelation, when John sees the glorified Jesus Christ, he falls down on his face as a dead man, just like the prophets would fall down on their face before Yahweh. But most of us don't experience the glory of God or the weightiness of God with visions of God's weighty, glorious, visual form. And even Moses was probably thinking this because God's response to Moses is no one can see my face and live. Maybe we could just quickly see here. How many of you have had visions of the glory of God that caused you to fall on your face? If you could just raise your hand. A few of you have. That's more than I thought, actually. But most of us don't experience that. You're the select few. It's pretty rare to visually see the glory of God that causes you to fall on your face like the prophets had fallen on your face. Instead, God said this to Moses. I will make my goodness pass before you. Because you and I, what transforms us and what makes us realize that God is a weighty God, what makes us see that God is a weighty God is not The fire and the power of his glory in visual visual form. It's not usually presented that way to us. Usually it is presented in his goodness being displayed to us. And through his goodness, we are transformed. And I can tell you what, when you experience the goodness of God, there is nothing that will make you glorify God more. There is nothing that will make you praise God more. A few years ago, uh, I had a dream that I was at work. And I walked outside of the garage door at work, and there were two angels outside. And one was sitting on a bunk of siding, and this angel said to me, look up. And so I looked up, and as I looked up, 
the holiness of God radiated down on me. And it struck me with so much fear, I was paralyzed in that dream. And I just raised my hand like this. A terror that God is a holy God and I am an unholy person. And I woke up with my hand above my my head like this. And though I didn't forget that dream, that dream didn't bring transformation in my life. It brought a lot of fear in my life. It did display God's weightiness in the sense that he is a holy God and in comparison, I am a very unholy person. But it didn't bring transformation. But I'll tell you what did bring transformation. It's when God came to me in his goodness and he said, I don't condemn you. I love you. I'm proud of you. What transformed me was not when I saw the holiness, but when I experienced the goodness. Uh, Michael and Rhoda recently borrowed me a book, and I'm only a few chapters in, but a point was made in that book that I cannot stop thinking about. And in that book, it, it, paraphrasing it, he said that God is a God of love. And the only natural response to a God of love is love. And if you would just experience the goodness of God truly and fully, if you would see his goodness, the natural response would just be love bursting out of you for this God that is so good. It's not, you shall love the Lord thy God and you better do it. You can't help it. You experience his goodness and it just bursts out. Ah. I love this God. For those of you that are married, think about how the process of falling in love with your spouse. There was something that took place. You started noticing these characteristics of your spouse. Just, mmm, I like that. And then you start falling in love. You can't help it. It just starts happening. It wasn't, oh, I, I better love this person, or I guess I'll get engaged today. I don't know. You couldn't help it. It just started happening. It naturally came out of you. And when you experience this God that is so good, you can't help but love him for it. It's not something uh, religious. The command says to love, so I better love. You can't help it. So, if you don't love God this morning, it's because you haven't met him. You haven't experienced his goodness. You haven't seen who he is. And then the Lord says this, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim my name before you. And ask yourself this, if somebody who you've never met before came up to you and said, who are you? Tell me about yourself. Well, I, uh, I build barns, and I like pizza, and I watch baseball, and you start giving these characteristics about yourself to inform a per- other person about who you are. Because a name, a name is supposed to reflect aspects about a person. That's why uh, Abraham, his name was Abram. God changed it to Abraham. And uh, Abraham means father of a multitude. In other words, God said, Abram, I'm going to make you a father of thousands and millions of people. Therefore, I'm going to change your name to Abraham. The name reflected who Abraham was going to be. He changed Sarai to Sarah. And Sarah means princess. 
a daughter of a king. Your name is supposed to reflect who you are. And so when I, when I uh, uh, taught this in the uh, Children of Promise, what I would do is at the beginning of every lesson, I would, we would all repeat the name of the Lord together. So I'm going to say the name of the Lord, and you just repeat it after me. The Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, you can repeat this, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and their children's children. To the third and fourth generation. And you don't need to repeat this. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go before us, in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. So we're going to just start with the Lord. The Lord, the Lord. What is this? Is this just like a generic name, like, uh, my name is John. And John, John, the person who eats pizza and watches baseball and does all this other, builds barns. Or is there more significance in the name the Lord? The Lord here is the consonants yod he wah And in academic circles, they call this the tetra, tetragrammaton. And this verse, the, this word, the Lord, it's different from the Lord that you see in the Old Testament that is not capitalized. That would be Adonai, which means master. But when you see the word capitalized, the Lord, it's the tetragrammaton. And it's basically Y-H-W-H. And this is the personal name of Yahweh. Scholars or Hebrew rabbis would count this name so holy, we actually don't know the actual spelling of the name. It was different, but rabbis thought it so holy that they changed it to the Tetragonaton because they didn't want to take the Lord's name in vain by writing it in a, in a uh, manner that was not worthy of the holiness of this name. And every time they would write Y-H-W-H, they would get a new pen... Write it out and then break the pen so that nothing could ever be written in this name afterward. They, they consider this so significant. And here's where we first get this name Yahweh in the Old Testament. It's from Exodus chapter 3. Moses said to God, if I go to the Israelites and tell them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am that I am. And he said, You must say this to the Israelites. I am has sent you to you. God also said to Moses, you must say to the Israelites, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name. And this is the memorial from generation 
to generation. You know, it's interesting. God, uh, later, or actually a few chapters after this, the Lord said, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, El Shaddai, but by my name, the Lord, I was not known to them. And as, there, as Moses is going to go into Egypt to draw his people out of slavery, God is saying, I'm not just going to be Lord God the Almighty, the one who is able to make 90-year-old women have children, the one who is able to bless Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and give them prosperity and riches. There's an escalation of relationship. You're going to actually know me personally and my name. I'm not just going to be the generic God, which is the word El in Hebrew, El Shaddai, I'm going to be Yahweh. It's personal. So what's going on here? First, God says, I am that I am. This is what you will say to Israel. I am has sent you. And then he says, and you will say this to Israel, the Lord has sent you. And we're not going to spend too much time on this because this is kind of, uh, this is kind of heavy academic stuff. And, uh, it gets into Hebrew morphology and, uh, word structure. So I'm just going to give you a few little tidbits of what, what's going on here. First of all, I am that I am is pronounced ihya, asher, ihya in the Hebrew. And Hebrew word structure is, it's surrounded by three, three letter root words. And depending on the prefix and the, uh, and the suffix, it changes the meaning of the word. And so ihya, asher, ihya, I am that I am, the root structure, the root letters are H-Y-H or H-W-H in the Aramaic. And that root word is the word, it's a verb, it's to be. Number one observation you should make. The Lord's name is a verb, it's not a noun. If you'd say, hi, what's your name? My name is building. What do you do? I I build things. Well, God is saying that he's to be. He exists. He just is. But then... What's the deal with this Yahweh thing? Okay, God is to be, but what is this Yahweh? And uh, uh, the, <laughs> Yahweh also has the root, three-letter root words, H-Y-H, or H-W-H in the Aramaic. And that's why the Tetragonaton is, tet, I'm not pronouncing it, Tetragrammaton uh, is Y-H-W-H. It's the same root as he, Ihya, Asher, Ihya. And it would be the expected third person, person version of he is, or I am, or to be. And so every time you're saying the name Yahweh, what you're actually saying is he is. That's his name. The God that is. And he's revealing himself to Israel, not just as El Shaddai. He's revealing himself to Israel as the God who was with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, who is with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, and the one that will be with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He cannot die. He always was. He is the end from the beginning. He simply is. But what is he? Well, let's go back to what the Lord just proclaimed. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful. Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful. He is, he is. A God merciful. If you want to experience God, it starts here. A God merciful. If you want to experience a God, you cannot, if you want to experience Yahweh, you cannot begin it unless you're willing to accept his mercy on your life. How many of you are familiar with Ray Comfort or watched his videos of street evangelism? 
Ray Comfort, uh, he, he does a lot of street evangelism, and he goes around and he asks people, do you believe you're a good person? And almost every time, the people will be like, yeah, I believe I'm a good person. You know, I haven't killed anybody. I try to be nice to people. I try to do what I can. I'm a good person. And so Ray then goes into uh, the Ten Commandments. Well, let's examine this. Have you ever lied? Have you ever looked at somebody with lust in your heart? Have you ever stolen anything? Have you ever taken God's name in vain? And as you go down this list of Ten Commandments, most of the time people will be like, oh, okay, maybe I am a liar. Maybe I am a thief. Maybe, maybe I am adulterer at heart. And if that's the case, I don't know what a good God would do with me. If you're not willing to first accept the reality that you are not a good person, the relationship with Yahweh that begins with mercy can never be yours. It starts with understanding that I am a sinner. And guys, this is wonderful. So often in my life, I've kind of shrank back from my sin. Like, I don't, I don't want to see my sin. I don't want to acknowledge my sin. I don't want to see that I am an infallible and imperfect person. And that hinders you from knowing and experiencing the God who is merciful. He's abounding in so much mercy. All you do is come to him and say, I'll take some of that mercy if you'll give it to me. It's his name. It's who he identifies. As Abraham was identified as a father of multitudes, God is identifying his name as a name that is mercy. And so we begin with a God that is merciful to us. In the Psalms, it says, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of men to see if there is anyone who understands, who seeks God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. There is nobody in this world who is good. And that is why it is vital for us to experience Yahweh, Yahweh, a God who is merciful. And he's just, that's his name. You want to experience the goodness of God? You want to experience and have a connection with this God? You start with mercy. In John chapter 8, Jesus uh, was in Jerusalem, and the Pharisees brought before him a woman who had committed adultery. And according to the law, according to the law of Moses, it said that if a man commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, both that man and the woman will be put to death. That's what the law said. And this woman right now has broken that law. I want you to understand, this was not just the Pharisees being mean. This was actually, according to the law of Moses, the Pharisees were doing the right thing. They were going to kill this woman. The man should have been there too. I don't know where he was. But they were going to kill this woman according to the law of Moses. That's what it required. And so they brought her before Jesus and they asked her what they would do. And Jesus stooped down and he wrote in the ground. And on the Mount of Sinai, the same finger that was once used to inscribe in tablets of stone, thou shalt not commit adultery, is now stooping on the ground and writing once again. Only this time the verdict was different. Jesus got up and he said, He who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. 
And all the Pharisees, all the people were cut to the heart. And beginning with the oldest down to the youngest, they left. And then Jesus went to the woman and he asked her, where are your accusers? And then he said, is there anyone that condemns you? No one, Lord. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. See, Imagine if that woman had committed adultery and it was just the culture. We live in a culture that eh, it's no big deal. You can have sex outside of marriage. It's not a big deal. Imagine if this woman was that. Living in a culture that there was no law against it. And she's just doing her thing and then Jesus comes up to her and says, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. What? See, when somebody comes up to you and says, by the way, I forgive you, it's kind of offensive. What? What did I do that needed forgiveness? If you don't know your sin, the impact of mercy loses its goodness to you. If you don't realize the state of sin you're in and the punishment of it, This woman, the weight of Jesus' words meant something because there were stones that were about to be thrown at her. But if you don't realize your sin, the weight of his mercy is diminished. This is why we don't hide from our sins. When you hide from your sins, you're diminishing what God is offering to you. Take my mercy. Take my goodness upon yourself. Uh, the question is often raised, I've found, in the course of life. Is this conviction or is this condemnation? I can't figure it out. And it's a sense of tension. Do I need to repent or do I need to just rebuke this in Jesus' name? Conviction or condemnation? How beautiful it would be if we as a body, when we sense the conviction of the Holy Spirit, could go bask in the goodness of God's mercy. And how beautiful would it be if we felt condemnation, the attack of condemnation in our life, use it as an opportunity to bask in the glories of God's mercy. Both are an opportunity. If you're experiencing conviction or condemnation, just go to the God who is merciful. Whether you've sinned or not sinned, go run to his mercy with his arms that are open wide to you and who's ready to say, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. In Ezekiel, we have this passage, and it says, Again, though I say to the wicked, you shall surely die. Yet if he turns from his sin and does what is right and just, if the wicked restores the pledge, gives back what he has taken by robbery, and walks in the statutes of life, not doing injustice, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of the sins that he has committed shall be remembered against him. He has done what is just and right. He shall surely live. This is the kind of God we have. If you just repent, my mercy is there for you. If you'll just repent of this wickedness and of this sin, I'll just give you life. You're not going to die. Regardless of what you've already done, I'm going to give you life. But the gospel is not primarily about mercy. Does anybody know what Paul calls the gospel? A gospel of? He doesn't call it mercy, a gospel of mercy. 
He calls it a gospel of grace. And grace is one of these Christianese terms that we throw around. You just got to accept God's grace, man. You just got to experience the grace of God. Well, what is grace? When I was teaching in, uh, in the Children of Promise, I almost just incorporated this attribute of God with mercy because I was like, grace is so close to mercy. How do you define this? Everybody kind of knows what it means, but nobody knows how to explain it. And it... And I felt the Holy Spirit's conviction that I shouldn't do that. And it ended up being my favorite one of these. Grace. So what is it? Imagine you have a best friend. Hopefully you don't need to imagine that. Hopefully that's real in your life. But let's just say you have a friend. And you connect on so many different levels. You're always going out and doing things together. You're hanging out. You're having fun. You share your heart. You share the deep things in your heart with this person. And then one time you're out doing something and suddenly this friend beats you up, steals all your money, and runs away. And you get taken to the hospital and you're laying in the hospital and you're like, what was that? My friend just almost killed me. And then the friend comes to you and he's like, "Uh, you know, I'm sorry. Sorry about that. (laughs) Here's what mercy does. Mercy is like, okay, I'm not going to call the cops. I'm not going to give you what you deserve. I'm not going to give you the penalty that is required for justice to be done. That's what mercy. I am going to take it upon myself. You're the one who's beaten up. You lost your money. Somebody had to pay that price. And that's going to be me. I'm going to have mercy on you. But here's what grace does. Not only am I going to have mercy on you, I'm going to restore our relationship. So I'm going to view you as if you've never even done this. I'm going to look at you like you never took my money, like you never put me in the hospital. Grace, the definition of grace could be defined as unmerited favor. You've experienced a favor that was not through anything that you have done. In fact, you have done the exact opposite. And when we say the Lord, the Lord, a God who is gracious, we are saying uh, the Lord, the Lord, the God who has unmerited favor for you. Though you did not deserve his grace, he's going to give you favor that wasn't merited. So let's apply this to the gospel. Does anybody know why Jesus had to live a perfect life? Most of the time when I ask this question, I get the response, well, God required a perfect sacrifice. And in the same line that Israel, when they would sacrifice a lamb, it had to be a lamb without blemish. Uh, right now, uh, in Israel, there are sacrifices are not being performed because it, what is required is a perfect red heifer without a single white hair to be on it. Uh, and once they find that, then they can begin sacrifices. Recently, three perfect red heifers were delivered to Jerusalem. And they have to go through uh, two years of inspection. And if they don't grow a single white hair in the course of those two years, we can begin sacrifices or they can begin sacrifices in Jerusalem again. But what is required is an absolutely perfect sacrifice. And that's most of the time the response I get. And that's right. 
correct. But if not, why? God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. That's mercy. You who required the death penalty of sin, the wages of sin is death. God made Christ to become sin for you. You don't need to pay that debt anymore. But here's how that verse ends. So that you might become the righteousness of God. See, what happened in the gospel was not just mercy. I'm going to save you from death. I'm going to save you from the fires of hell. That wasn't the point. The point was to give you a gift, namely the righteousness of Christ, so that you could become. This is why in John 5 it says, God gave us eternal life, and this is the life in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. The gospel of grace did not just save you from your sin. It gave you something. Unmerited favor. If Jesus was not perfectly righteous and then died for everybody's sin, let's just say, okay, he paid the penalty of sin. I don't think that's possible without him being perfect. But let's just say that happened. Christ paid the penalty of sin, but he was not perfectly righteous or he didn't give you his righteousness. Great, you're saved from hell. You're not reconciled to God. You're still not connected to God, who requires perfect righteousness to be in his presence. The Lord, the Lord, a God gracious, says, I'm going to give you righteousness. I'm going to give you unmerited favor. A gift of salvation is about grace. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sakes, he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might be reconciled to God. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Your salvation was not just God having mercy on you. Your salvation was, I'm going to give you unmerited favor. I'm going to give you my righteousness. And it is because God's righteousness is in you. It is because his life is in you. That now, when the, at the last day, when we're raised from the dead, we will be raised in the same manner that Christ was raised from the dead. Christ living in us, that unmerited favor, is what saves us. It's not just mercy. The Lord, the Lord, a God slow to anger. You know, my problem in my life is that uh, most of my life I've lived according to Murphy's Law. Whatever bad thing that can happen will happen. And so when I see uh, the statement, "God, the Lord, the Lord, a God slow to anger, I think God gets angry. And if God gets angry... He will get angry at me. And I take out the slow to anger, and I'm just like, God is probably angry at me today. See, this is the theology I'm talking about at the beginning. What are your feelings about God? Is it true that God gets angry? Yes. That's good theology. That's correct. God does get angry. Is it true that God is always angry at you or quick to get angry at you? No. Well, but God said he gets angry. It's in the Bible. 
it, that's not good theology. But it is good that God gets angry. <laughs> in, uh, when Israel went out into the promised land to obtain it, uh, there were the Ammonites and the Assyrians, and what they would do is they, they would have this idol that they would sacrifice their babies to Molech. And this idol was uh, lifted up like this with its hands out, and there was a fire lit under these hands. And then they would place their children inside of these hands and burn them to death, sacrificing their children to Molech. Now, if you tell me that it is not good that God get ang- gets angry at that, then I don't think you know what good is. It is very good that God gets angry when he sees people sacrificing their children like that. It is very good that God gets angry when he looks at America and sees the abortion that's taking place. When he looks and sees the racism that has taken place in America. It is good that God gets angry at these things. But God is not angry. It's not the Lord, the Lord, a God that's angry. He is, he is a God quick to angry. That's not what it is. The Lord, the Lord, a God slow to anger. This is why we have passages like this. And they shall come back in the third and fourth generation for the iniquity of the Ammonites is not yet complete. The iniquity, the transgression, the sin of the Ammonites is not complete. And because God is a God that's so slow to anger, he does not desire to quickly bring judgment down. He desires all to come to repentance. And so he's slow. We see this in the story of Jonah and the Ninevites. Jonah goes to the Ninevites and he declares in 40 days, God is going to destroy you all. Well, why why not just destroy them? If they sin, just quick. Send fire and brimstone down on them and destroy them. No, there's a 40-day period. Repent, Ninevites. And they do repent. And God spares them of this judgment. Why? Because he's slow to anger. He's patient. When I was a teenager, most of you know that I struggled with believing I was predestined for hell. I didn't know much about God. Nobody taught me uh, how to interpret scripture or hermeneutics. So I read Romans 9 and I was like, okay, this isn't good. If anything bad that can happen, it will happen. And so if it's possible I could be predestined for hell, I probably am predestined for hell. And here's what I wish somebody would have told me. John, you don't know God. You know some facts about God, but you don't know him. You don't know his name. His name is slow to anger. His name is merciful. His name is gracious. His name is good. And his glory is good. You don't know God. Well, Romans 9 said, no, 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 no. You don't know him. You want to jump to Romans 9 and interpret that passage that you're predestined for hell? And you don't even know this God that inspired Romans 9. How do you expect to interpret that without knowing him first? The fact is, God did not predestine you to hell. He did not predestine me to hell. But I'll tell you what God is. He's merciful. You want to experience the mercy of God? Just go to him. You want to experience the grace of God? He's holding out the righteousness of Christ and saying, if you'll just come, I'll give you this unmerited favor. And if you're struggling with sin this morning, and it's a chronic disease, this illness that you can't get free of, I'll tell you one thing, God is slow to anger. God is very patient with you. He desires all to come to him. 
in repentance and receive his free gift of eternal life. God is a very slow, very slow to anger. Here's in Romans 2, 3 to 4. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on his riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God is a very kind, very kind God. The fact that America still exists after the millions of babies that have been born it, it declares the goodness of God, that he is a God slow to anger, and he's calling all of us as a nation to repent of this sin. He's slow to anger, and he's patient with you. I think clearly the length of my messages are becoming a problem at this point, because I only got about halfway through these attributes of God. So it's 11.59. We're going to wrap up. And maybe at some point I'll finish these attributes. But here's what I want to say to you. You don't need me to tell you about God. You do not need me to stand up here and preach to you about the characteristics of God. You don't need this. Let me tell you what you need. You need Jeremiah 31, 34. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord. Guys, know this God that is merciful and gracious and slow to anger. Know him. You don't need me to tell you that. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the one who is. Yahweh, the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. We didn't even get to that attribute, forgiving transgression, iniquity, and sin. You don't need me to tell you about him. But I can tell you one thing. You can experience him this morning. You can experience the God who is merciful. The God who is gracious. The God who is slow to anger. Here's what Isaiah says. But now, O Jacob, listen to the Lord who created you. O Israel, the one who formed you says, Do not be afraid, for I have ransomed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Do you know the name of the Lord this morning now? The Lord says to you, I have called you by name. You are mine. Can this morning you say, Yahweh, I have called you by name. You are mine. The God that is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, who keeps steadfast love for thousands, forgives your transgression, iniquity, and sin, but who will no means clear the guilty. Can this morning you meet with the God who is?